Hello, we are the makers of history. With me, Foz and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello, and welcome everybody to the concluding final part of our first series, the end of the late Bronze Age. The end of the late Bronze Age. Not to say like after this, we're not doing another series because we definitely are. We've already, <laughs> well, I say we. You've already started writing it all, and I've already started reading it all. So we've got <laughs> something. We're ready, ready to go. So we're probably going to go straight in from this and then in two weeks we'll release the start of the next one i guess mm-hmm. um yeah how you been bruv yeah i'm good mate how are you doing well you're okay apart from the beer situation you found yourself yeah this in. is a fucking disaster to be honest which I'm <laughs> barely concealing my rage and disappointment so i mean the other day i went up to the local now gentrified shop bought myself a big old plastic bottle from a local microbrewery got it home and then went to open it today had the first glass and turns out it expired 11 days ago and it's like you know microbrewery unpasteurized beer mm. so it tastes kind of like salt mostly oh but salt's nice yeah as i want to drink a liter of salt that's how <laughs> i like to get through things yeah mm. like i poured it out i was like that looks suspiciously flat that doesn't look right oh god mate yeah, so I mean, I've, I've improvised. I've got a backup solution, which is a Cozelle. Very nice. That's going to disappear soon, though, so you're going to be back onto the crappy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Are you even going to attempt to drink it? Once I've got through this next Cozelle, yeah. I mean, oh. that's going to have to be how we struggle through. It's still got, like, a beery background taste behind, like, <laughs> the disappointment flavour. Disappointment but... and salt. <laughs> Tastes like your tears. <laughs> Oh, very nice. Have you been coping with the weather then? Man, it's been like 37 degrees. Oh, that's hot, Which man. is, that's not, that's not a natural human temperature. It's um, like fully unbearable. And so, okay, cool. So the kid, my kids are going to be growing up in the Mad Max climate change wasteland future, which is, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. To look forward to. Uh, my blood is gasoline! <laughs> <laughs> That's something I'll say in the Mad Max future, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, of the cars and that. Mm. Yeah, no, so... It's been absolutely killing me, to be honest. Oh, How yeah. are you? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Well, apart from having a bad, upset stomach today. I'm off work it's just today because uh, I booked the day off, which was nice because I've got building work going on, as you know, downstairs. I'm having my house extended. Um, and I ordered a lovely, delicious takeaway for my lunch, and it basically wrote me off for the rest of the day. So that was very nice. That's yeah. how you know you've bought quality, though. Yeah. Uh, so I ain't going to get into no graphic details for the listeners, but all the listeners need to know <laughs> is that liquid was coming out of me, and that's where I'm going to leave it. <laughs> and now... I had a power nap to get through it, and I've gone straight onto the Guinness. That that is what any good doctor would recommend. Yeah. And this yeah. this listener is why it's important to support your local fast food takeaway, even if it does actively try to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, apart from that, I'm all right. It's very warm. It's gone very humid this afternoon. It's been super tropical, like every day, for the last I'd say two weeks. It's rained at some point, but every day also it's been over twenty degrees at some point so we're getting like mad rain and then it's just drawing straight back well not completely drawing up but heating back up and it's just so humid 
I'm sticky in the wrong places, not in the good way, in the bad way. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's not it's not been great. Um, but yeah, no, I, th- I feel like I'm okay. I've got my Guinness next to me, nice cold Guinness, full of iron. So they say that's good for a, ba- a bad stomach, I've heard. Loads <laughs> of Guinness. <laughs> Make it a Guinness plug. Yeah. Look. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are you going to teach me, bro? Where did we get to? All right. So last time then, so the in the last episode, which if you haven't listened to that and you're joining on this one for some reason, you probably want to go back and listen to the one before. It's two parter. Yep. So we talked about well, how... the whole thing's actually like an eight-parter, but <laughs> yeah. it makes more sense for this one if you listen to the previous one. Yeah. Um, so we talked about how the late Bronze Age world started to collapse, um, and we so we talked about uh, you know how it came to an end in Greece and Anatolia, and we talked about Ugarit, where we had this very dramatic destruction. With all oh, the lasers, the aliens with the laser-guarded lasers. Yep. Yep. The alien-guarded lasers. I mean, the, the good thing of you pushing this is we are going to get a Netflix series out. Of yeah, well, so. <laughs> that's, that's always been my live stream, to be honest. <laughs> um. So yeah, so last time then, you kept trying to trying to weasel out of me like, who's behind all this? And that's what we're going to start looking at today is, why did this you know huge complex international system come crashing down? So the first possible cause we're going to look at is the idea it was caused by foreign invasion and that's traditional this is like kind of the traditional um explanation it is that everything is blamed on a group called the sea people are they like the crab people <laughs> quite a lot like the crab people yeah sea people uh, tastes like the sea look like people <laughs> sea people <laughs> So the sea people are a mixture of different ethnicities, which are uh, different groups, which we're given names for, and they're described especially in the Egyptian sources. So the Egyptians blame it on the sea people, then. Is yes. What you're so the Egyptians describe like a conspiracy of different people coming together in their islands and on the sea, and making a plan to come and attack everybody. That sounds far-fetched already. Yeah, well, the, there's there's points to it. We'll come through it. So, I mean, like, the Egyptians depict these people in their art, in the wall carvings, and they they depict clearly different ethnic groups. You know, different uh, clothes they're wearing, different hairstyles. Some have these kind of, like, Mohican-looking hairstyles. Oh, have... cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the invasion by the bad kids from a 90s movie. <laughs> <laughs> wearing the leather shirts and their spikes. <laughs> Some of the others have uh, horns on their helmet. So when you look at the carvings, it's clear that it's supposed to indicate different groups. Okay. Um, and yeah, the Egyptian sources emphasise that they come from the sea and that they kind of cooperated together. Now, obviously, <laughs> what we... they just came from the sea. So they, yeah, pretty. Like, they basically pirated they... the way in. That's the. Yeah, the Egyptian sources talk about them coming from their isles, so like you know, people living on islands. The fact they're coming from the sea is significant. Okay. Um, obviously, we do not have any written sources from the sea people themselves, or any of the groups that are like identified with being okay. from them. Oh, that's strange. You'd think... Well, I know... I don't know how much writing went across to these other people. 
I mean, these people definitely come from outside of this, the Bronze Age yeah. system. So, I mean, they're kind of they're not part of this world of like you know Akkadian writing. Yep. The first mention of the Sea People is an invasion of Egypt in the year 1207 BC. Um. And then they would appear again in 1177 BC. The Egyptians, in their, you know, inscriptions, describe that they are able to defeat the both invasions of the Sea People. The one in 1177 is better documented. So this second invasion arrives and it comes up against the Pharaoh Ramesses the Third. Is that Ramses the Great, or was that the Ramses? The that was the second. Yeah, so this okay. is this is quite a bit afterwards. I think it's like hundred, maybe two hundred years afterwards. Okay. Um, so Ramses the Third leaves us a very detailed account in like huge wall carvings depicting his great victory over the Sea People. One thing to bear in mind, though, is obviously huge carvings on stone walls. This is state propaganda. Yeah, it should not be trusted at face value. Eric Klein in his book, and his book is called 1177 BC because it's like he identifies oh. this as the point when it collapses. Okay. Um, he emphasizes although Egypt may win this second invasion, the empire never really recovers. Yeah, it's sort of like the beginning of the end. Yeah, Egypt loses its extra territory, you know, its, its imperial territories in Asia, its international interactions start to decline the state becomes less stable in the future so it doesn't really recover from the second invasion I remember you saying on the last one as well like how most of this that we know about this time period was written by the Egyptians wasn't it they're sort of the narrator for this yeah exactly there there are like you said the narrator they're our voice for what's happening and obviously we have to be careful with what we're what we're seeing yeah the Egyptian pharaohs have a specific message they want us to take from the sources so they name a few different groups and we can kind of get a hint of where these people might have come from. One of the groups they identify is the Peleset. And this we identify the people that we call the Philistines who would move into the area of modern Israel and Palestine. I thought a Philistine was someone who like, didn't like the arts. Yeah, that name comes from the reference in the Bible to a people that lived... Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they lived um, after the Bronze Age, so in like, the early Iron Age. Um, so, yeah, they. this is also where we get the word Palestine from. Israel, oh. Palestine. So what you're saying is the Palestinians don't like modern art. <laughs> <laughs> You've called me a Philistine on numerous occasions. And yeah. I know well that that means it's someone who doesn't appreciate art. And then yeah, if the Palestinians don't appreciate, maybe you know what I mean. Maybe it was actually the Palestinians. Well, I think there's two points here. I mean, first of all, is that you're a fucking barbarian. <laughs> I don't know what you get that, but <laughs> um, and the kind of the, the Philistines. So obviously they're from like the Hebrew Bible. The most famous Philistine is you know the story of David and Goliath. Yeah. Goliath was a Philistine. Oh, okay. So these people. Um. So this is one group that kind of appears in the archaeological record, and this is where we see an identification. Oh, so there's not just a story from the Egyptians about it, like there is... There's a material culture that goes with it, okay. yeah, which we'll come to in a minute. 
Well, I've um, never heard that term before. A material culture? That sounds fancy and very uh, Material culture, what it means is, basically, when we dig holes in the ground, we find stuff, and that stuff, we can say this belongs to a particular culture. Yeah, ye olde stuff. Yeah, but it's like an identifiable, this is group A, not group B. Yeah. Another group which is named is the Shekelesh, also named as the Shekeleu by the Hittites. Okay. We... It's suspected that they may have an association with Sicily. Oh, okay. And another group is the Shardana, which we might be able to associate with Sardinia. Sardinia. I was literally about to say that, Shardana, because yeah. obviously you've already got Sicily, so I was like, oh, Sardinians maybe next. So the suggestion okay. that these people maybe have come from the central Mediterranean. Yeah, from the different areas around there, okay. That makes sense. Other groups have been identified with, for example, the Greeks... Um, there's a lot of different theories, some of which are better supported than others. Some of it's literally just a matter of, that sounds a bit like this. Other ones, there's more reason to believe it. Okay, so when you first said, like, the Sea Peoples, I was thinking, like, they all got together and, like, yeah, let's go and invade Egypt. But the the, the, the logical path for that is, like, it's just they've mi- there's been a mass migration of people and they've had to force their way in against the Egyptians. I suppose that could make sense. Yeah, I mean... Like, the way the Egyptians present it is exactly like you described at the start. Like, literally, they've all come together and, like, let's invade Egypt. Yeah. But our evidence, okay, if we're going to take this as the explanation, we see that, you know, as we saw last week, that the civilizations in Greece start to collapse, then the Hittites, and then the Egyptians next along the line, if we take yeah. it in this way. Come on, you Italian Palestinians, let's all go to Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the Egyptian sources describe that the sea people are destroying all the other countries before them in their wake during the time of Ramses III. So they're describing, like I've just said, like a, a tidal wave moving through the Mediterranean, destroying things as they come. Now, the evidence of the destruction layers at the different sites in Greece, in Anatolia, does not support this sort of like sudden disaster everywhere, but rather like it's a slow movement over several decades. But the thing with the Egyptian account in 1177, the one from Ramses III, is this may not be entirely his own story. So it might be the case that he's taking the story that already existed and people would know from the 1207 invasion, and he's repackaged it. And is repeating the same story with his name on it. It's not like they've done that before. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it's a thing that the pharaohs do is you know they take the stories of their ancestors, repackage, chip the name off, put a new name on it, and repeat it like they did it. Wankers. Yeah, and it could also be like you know certain stories just become like the kind of the trope of an invasion story, and that's I don't know like alien invasion stories all look kind of the same in like modern media, for example. Yeah, a bit like that. Anyway, so other sites around. Um, the kind of the Syria-Palestine area and Egypt, there is there are signs of destruction and quick resettlement. So this does support the narrative. Okay. There's a place uh, in Israel called Ashkelon, which is destroyed and then very quickly resettled. And uh, like I said, the material culture there is distinctly different after the, the destruction layer. Okay. So we see a change in the style of the architecture, the way they built their houses and buildings is different. And also smaller things, 
Their, the way they build their halves, their fireplaces, is different. The way they create bathtubs is different. Their pottery is different. And the way they weave textile is different. Well, how do we know about that? Because wasn't that just like right away? That was also bugging me. Because, like, both of my uh, sources for this, so Mark van der Meyrup's History of the Ancient Near East, Eric Klein's 1177 BC, both of them mention this, but neither of them say, how do we know? So, I mean, my first thought was maybe some textiles survive in some conditions. Like, you know, like a Dead Sea Scroll sort of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I reached out to the historian Brett Devereaux. He has a fantastic blog, by the way, called uh, Collection of Unmitigated Pedantry. Strongly recommend everyone check that out. Um, and basically, the way he explained it to me was that the way we can tell is not that we find the textiles. The textiles are gone. But if you think of the loom, so you have like you know the wooden frame, and you have the lines of um, cloth going across it, right? And what you have on that is you have stones that you attach to the end of the cloth to pull it tight, so you can yeah. work with it. And basically, though those stones, the ones they choose, the way they work them, the way they shape them, changes, and those are kind of distinctive. Ah, okay, so actually like the construction of the loom then. Yes, okay. the construction of the loom leaves the evidence and that's how we can see that the way they make textile changes. Ah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, nice. So, we definitely have evidence that... Ah, did he tell you that? Via Twitter. Oh, I was going to say, how do you know this kid? He's like ringing him up. No, like, no, no, oh, he's, he's in the US. Um... <clears throat> sort us out, what's going on? No, like he's a historian, but he does a lot of public outreach stuff, which I think is very cool. And he helps to explain, you know, complex archaeological stuff to people that are not complex archaeologists like ourselves. I don't know um, what you're talking about. <laughs> obviously, you've been leading digs all over. Uh, the place. Yeah, I've dig, you know, dug plenty of holes, mate. I'm a, <laughs> just digging a big hole in the middle of Stonehenge looking for the laser damage. Yeah. <laughs> As you can see, there's clear signs of laser. Guided lasers here. Yeah. <laughs> like, sir, you're burning the grass with your lighter to make it look like it. Please stop. Got a laser pen shining it. <laughs> the laser's still here. So, yeah, so there's, there is evidence for the sea people, um, for, for people that we can identify with the sea people, like, you know, turning up to places that are destroyed and resettling. But... There is no good evidence for them being the ones behind the destruction of the Hittites. And the Hittites yeah, are the it sounds... It don't... No, no, that stacks up. The, the Egyptian story don't stack up to me. Like, there's no way in this time period, unless there's some huge other civilization vortex going on. Like, there's no way people from a bunch of different islands like that have come together and made it like a conscious decision to, yeah, we're going to go invade Egypt. I just don't buy that. Yeah, I think we can we can probably look at individual cities. So we can look at Ashkelon. They could also be the ones who are behind the destruction of Troy, because we know that that was destroyed around the year 1180. So that would line up. Okay. You know, if they're turning up in Egypt in 1177, within the previous decade they've destroyed Troy. Possible. Lots of the you know the letters and the discourse like we had from Uger the other day. Uh, mention enemy ships so people coming from the sea there is reason to believe that's happening but as with our letter from Ugarit last last episode that described like seven ships that's yeah not a... it's yeah it sounds more like oh uh, like they must have had something going on which is a, a, an interesting thing separately like what's driven 
these um, Palestinian Italians and all them lot to move over here. That's that's another interest. Obviously, I know that, that there's not going to be an answer for that, but that's an interest. So it might have been that's happening. Very interesting you say that because. I think we do have an answer for that. Ooh, okay. We're going to come to that one in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, interesting. It's probably... So hold on to that idea then. So, like, let's keep this already parked in your mind. The idea, probably see people aren't turning up like, you know, a barbarian or destroying everything. But there is evidence to believe there's new people in the area turning up, causing problems, attacking, picking off weak targets. Yeah. And obviously they're going to be looking completely different, these people, to what they're used to, aren't they? Oh, you know, call mohawks and bike. Yeah, call mohawks. <laughs> so one thing we do see in the latest part of the Bronze Age is an increase in um state-to-state -state war, so interstate conflict. Not because they're about... getting desperate. You know, we're talking about obviously everything's collapsing. You're saying the war's increasing. That's yeah. that's a clear sign of like if it's all of a sudden got way more war, mm. people are probably getting desperate, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's like one side of it is maybe there's more desperation and the flip side is as the states are getting bigger and more complex, they can support bigger armies, the war becomes on a bigger scale <clears> that they're able to support. So we mentioned before, like when the Hittites collapsed, that that had the effect of kind of cutting off uh, Assyria and Babylon. So by removing the Hittites from the game, there's no longer interaction for those eastern states in Mesopotamia with the ones on the Mediterranean. That's going to be devastating as well, isn't it? Like, have, not having that trade value, like... Because obviously everyone benefits from trade when yep. people are trading. So that when you get that isolated from all those people that you were constantly trading with, like, your bronze... They don't have... I'm pretty sure that they don't have all the all the makings of bronze within Mesopotamia, do they? Yeah, for them... Um... Copper is going Would to become hard. Was it Cyprus? The, yes, Cyprus is the major or source. Tin. Of... Was it tin or copper? One copper. of them, isn't it? Yeah. So that's going to have a massive effect. Like that's if that's the primary material, isn't it? It's like mm -hmm. cutting the UK off from oil. Yeah, nowadays, like the main yep. fucking ingredient for your culture. So yeah, this is going to have the effect of like making these states into a kind of a little a little uh, bubble in a vacuum, and it's going to very quickly cause a de like a degradation of their society. So, Assyria and Babylon then were already major players, and there's a third party in there which is kind of a second order state called Elam, which was down in the southwest of what's now Iran. They had been kind of a second tier player. By the end of the Bronze Age, they were starting to emerge as like a top tier great power, and had the Bronze Age continued in the same way it probably would have emerged on the same level and been part of the system but it never quite got there oh good <laughs> so this is a re region of like frequent state war between Assyria Babylonia and Elam so the Assyrians had been on the up in the late Bronze Age um, they'd kind of reached a high point under their king here we go try and say this Takolti Ninurta the first that name's come up before, hasn't it? To call yes, Nina. he was like because I called high... him old Nina. Yes. <laughs> so he represents kind of the high point of the Assyrian state when they were able to invade Babylon and overthrow the pre the ruling dynasty. They were having a great time as well. Looks, we go back to the drug use episodes. These guys <laughs> smoking, smoking derifa. Yeah, as I've, I don't know if we actually mentioned in the episode, but the word cannabis it may come from. 
Yeah, something to do with them. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was a long time ago we did that episode, to be fair. It was <laughs> a couple of months ago, weren't it? Yeah. But uh, the words derived from something to do with them, I think, wasn't it? The thing that makes smoke or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so the Assyrian kings had this ideology of, you know, being military conquerors. And being funny, but Alf, they sound the funniest one, don't they? Because you get to ride around on your chariot all day, smoking weed and, like, just smashing shit to pieces and taking stuff from people. Just having sh- a little bit of light genocide. Yeah, that's how me up, brother. I'll be an Assyrian. So anyway, so yeah, they had this um, policy of like constant war, constant campaign, and the king should always be out fighting. After Tukulti Ninurta the first died, the state became very unstable. A lot um, of states seem to have done that. Like we said last week, it seems to be like you have these powerful leaders. You get a bit of decentralisation with inheritance and change of laws, and it seems to all go to shit after that. Yeah, I think it's like when you know so much power was invested in one person. When that person dies, it's very hard to recover from that. Yeah, from that vacuum, like people vie for that fight, that power, yeah. don't they? And yeah. So th- this had the effect of making Assyria very unstable, and for ninety years, the like the external fighting, the wars that they carried out outside of Assyria would stop. Um, the outposts and territories they had acquired in the western part of modern Syria. They were not destroyed, they survived, but the culture there becomes more simple, the material culture becomes less rich, and also the writing stops in those western cities. Oh. So then, clearly, they're no longer receiving the supplies to maintain yeah. that educated class. Yeah, we talked about that, don't it? obviously, at this point, because obviously literacy rate is probably like 1% or whatever it is. Yep. You need like a foundation, like a wealthy foundation to support that literacy, don't you? Yeah. So like, you know, people that can, especially write, maybe not so much read, but people that can write, it's like a specialised trade. Yeah. Um, and that's also like a misconception people have in the Middle Ages, like I think that, oh, no one could read. People could read, like educated people could, but writing was like a specialised skill. Um, so throughout Assyria urbanisation decreases um, cities become smaller or become abandoned and a new group of people called the Arameans move into the area and they start occupying and living in the rural areas why do I know that what name Aramean Uh, they would become dominant in the Middle East later and their language Aramaic would become the dominant language in the Middle East I know it from something like more interesting than that. I don't know it because they become the dominant language group. I know it because there's like ah, oh, there's an interesting story or something. There's something called the Aramaic. Um, Aramaic's like the language of parts of the Hebrew Bible. Oh, okay, maybe that's where I've heard it from. Then yeah, that makes more sense. Okay, because you know me, I'm an avid reader of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, in Aramaic, in the, in the original languages. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So then, in Babylonia itself, then, so like, you know, the ancient centre of urban life in the region. Um, after the Assyrian invasion, there are competing different dynasties trying to assert the rule over Babylon. And the rule by this Kassite people that we described back at the start ends. Babylon... That's the language, isn't it, of the Babylonians, Kassite? Is that, is that right? I'm uh, they speak Akkadian, which Akkadian. is an older language. So what's Kassite again, then? So the Kassites are a people that appeared something like 1600, 1700 BC, and they take over the rulership in Babylon 
But they become like culturally integrated into. Yeah, they're like, the people yeah. that sort of like came in from the outskirts and started settling around exactly, Babylon yeah. at this low point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, I remember that from the episode now. So Babylon itself faces violent destruction in the 1150s by the people from Elam, and the statue of the god Marduk you might remember from talking about religion. Oh, when he went for a walk. Yep, they took the statue back to Elam. Oh, nice. So he, went he went for a long walk, then. Yeah. <laughs> he went on walk. He's getting fresh air, isn't he? <laughs> For those who haven't listened to that episode, basically, it was a big thing. So, you have, like, the, the, the gods would be literally a statue that lived in the city. And it was very much like that statue is the living embodiment of the god. So, they'd, like, go to war with each other, raid each other, and, like, nick each other's statues off each other. So, basically, steal each other's gods. And the explanation at the time was, oh, he's, he's gone. He's gone out to like spread the religion, or he's gone for a walk to get fresh air, or they come up with some bullshit yeah. reason for it. Basically, so, yeah. It's like, oh, the god let himself be captured because he wanted to go for a little trip. Yeah. <laughs> and they used to take it outside the city once a year for fresh air and stuff like that. <laughs> so throughout the 12th century BC, then Elam keeps making military campaigns into Babylonia, plundering and, and raiding. The cities of Babylonia go into sharp decline, like the, the size and the scale of the cities drops off very quickly, very heavily. There are probably only three proper cities left. Most of the, uh, most of the smaller and medium sized cities just kind of disappear. How many because, was there when you said there's three left? I don't, I've got no reference for how, what, what's that in comparison to, like how many cities would there have been? Uh, I think there's something like 20 to 30 like major Oh, okay, cities. so it's a drastic change. Though. Yeah. Uh, and basically, because they've lost control of the ability to rule the countryside, they can no longer maintain the food supply to keep the cities going. We talked about that, isn't it? It's all the identity of like the city, and then everything else supports the city. So if the support for the city isn't there... Yeah, it's no longer sustainable. Mm. So most people that lived kind of settled farming lifestyle now lived in villages... Some formerly large cities like Nippur became just a small population living around like the massive temple complex. So that all that's left from that great city is the temple and people just huddled around it. It's really hard to think like such an apocalyptic event, basically. Yeah. Because that's really what it is. So these people, it's literally like us all of a sudden. Like, I live in Birmingham, which is the second obviously second biggest city in the UK and it's literally like all of a sudden we're just like oh fend for yourself guys like nothing's coming from London no more nothing's coming from Birmingham City anymore like just fend, go yeah. on fend for yourselves and then imagine like the entire city's just collapsed and all that's left is a handful of villagers living around the ballroom yeah uh, and a bunch <laughs> of Palestinian Italians wearing leather biker jackets trying to steal my stuff raiding all your stuff yeah <laughs> My blood is gasoline. <laughs> so it's estimated, like the you know the urban population, the people that are living in cities, is maybe twenty five percent of what it had been one thousand years before. Oh wow! Um, as the cities break down and that like organising structure in the cities breaks down, so do so too does the ability to maintain the farmland. So I mentioned before, the farming in Babylonia is based on this complex irrigation system, taking water from the rivers to feed the fields. Well, it would be, because it's hot as fuck, man. So they'd yeah, have exactly. to have like, a complex system. It's not like here where it rains every fucking second day. It's... <laughs> exactly. So now there's no one maintaining that system. So like you know, if you think of like, the water lift breaks or the, the channel silts up, 
no one's organising to come and fix that. So and that's all like, going to go to shit then, isn't it? Yeah, so it shuts down really quickly. And people start abandoning that settled farming lifestyle, take their animals and start becoming nomadic. There are some f- reasons why this happens. So partly is the Euphrates River changes its course. The Euphrates and the Tigris move a lot. They flood and they change the route which they flow. Okay. So this immediately takes water away from some cities. If they're in the wrong location, when this happens, they lose their water supply. <clears throat> the other thing we've talked about, like you know, the cities are growing, they've become more complex. The demand on the soil becomes greater and greater and greater. Like lack of nutrients as well, obviously. You're not exactly. Getting properly, the soil is going to degrade. You, exactly. You're, you're going from like producing X amount to X to the minus amount of stuff. It's just a rest. It's li- li- everything you talk about here makes sense for the like. Obviously, we all want to think something big, drastic happens that does it, but all these little things have such a big knock-on effect. Like, like not yeah. not not managing an irrigation system and not being able to make food. Obviously, how many people are gonna die because of that from not being able to have? If last year we were making a hundred food units. And this year, because no one's managing the irrigation and the soil quality's gone shit, we're only getting 10 units. That's like 90% of the people aren't getting food. Yeah. And obviously and those numbers aren't based on anything, yeah, yeah, but yeah, as no, an but example, like, that's drastic, isn't it? And then you think, like, okay, the workforce is going to be smaller because people are going to be weaker, they're going to starve. There's less people to work the fields next year. It's still, the land's still exhausted. It's going to be like, you know... It's going to mount on top of itself. It's going to get worse and worse. What, out of interest, what do you know about the Euphrates changing? Like, because you, you claim that as a point of why the the water. Do you, do you, is there any like why did it change so drastically? Um, the Euphrates just kind of does that. It's a feature of the river that if there's like you know a flooding event or something, it just completely changes its course. It does this throughout history. Okay. It's one of the kind of cultural differences between like a. Egypt, where the Nile is very consistent, it floods regularly, and it stays the same course, whereas the Euphrates and the Tigris jump around all over the place. They're very unpredictable. And it's like, completely, even in like the culture and the religion, reflect the different relationship with the river. The flood story that we talked exactly. about before, because exactly. it comes from there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it's just kind of the nature of the river. So, but I think we're getting onto the edge of something here. So we're seeing like more than one cause, and it's, they're not mutually exclusive. Mm. This can happen as well as see people happening. Then, so we mentioned we mentioned already a couple of times that um, when the Hittites collapsed, they took the international trade system with them, right? And when this happens, the trade that, like we said, is maintaining the elites goes away. The luxury goods that make a person an elite, the thing that defines you because you have access to these items goes away and it takes away your kind of identity as an elite yeah not only that if you lose the raw materials that go with it the craftsmen who make the luxury goods for the elites also now no, no longer have a business well yeah if if, if, if the, the, everything's collapsing like this you ain't, you ain't bothered about getting an iPhone are you Yep, that's your exactly. last concern like I need to feed myself like I'm not worried about getting fancy fucking shoes for my horse like I'm, I'm, like, I'm gonna need food but if your job is making fancy shoes for the horse and now there's no longer fancy horseshoe materials coming in yeah you're now part of the problem as well yeah so 
Without that trade, the uh, luxury goods, and especially, like I already mentioned, the bronze, are not flowing around the system anymore. This is really going to be a disaster for cities that have specialised themselves as trade hubs. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because that that's a thing. Well, obviously, having all these cities in the in a centralised system, you're going to have specialisation, aren't you? Exactly. So, like last last episode, we talked about Ugar as an example. That was a specialised trade hub, and as we said, when it was destroyed, it went unoccupied for 700 years, and this might be why. If it no longer has that trade that made it an attractive city. There's no reason to resettle it. It's pointless, then, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, and as you know, the central power wall breaks down, the ability of the states to protect their borders breaks down, which then allows new people to move into the area, start settling in it, and it further weakens it. The state they no longer have control of the food resources to maintain themselves. Now, one of the things um, Eric Klein mentions in his book, he sort of goes through some of the proposed. Um, explanations and one of the things which he points out that people have suggested is um, a surge in earthquakes at this time we mentioned before when we talked about the destruction layers that people have looked at earthquake as an explanation for uh, destruction of Troy the destruction of um, Mycenae and other places. I didn't know that. Have we talked about that? We, we have about talked about that. Oh, well, you don't mind. We talked about how like, you can <laughs> tell the destruction layer is violent because of the presence of arrowheads. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we said how it wasn't... It couldn't be earthquakes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we do see earthquakes in the region. There's definitely a visible earthquake storm happening in Greece and the eastern Mediterranean between about 1225 BC and 1175 BC. Well, they they do get hurt because they had that earthquake yep. last year. In Tur- was it Turkey? Like, yeah, in Turkey. Part of Turkey. And it was like devastating. Like, there was yes. like so many people lost their lives from that, didn't they? I don't know yeah. whether there's like some plates in that area. Yeah, there's some tectonics in that area. Yeah. Like Greece is frequently hit with earthquakes. And it can be the case, like if you get a big one, then it just kind of triggers other ones as like the plates glide past each other and get stuck and it causes yeah, other okay. earthquakes. Um, definitely we see arche- in the archaeology evidence of earthquake destruction. So the way you can kind of tell when you're digging through a city, if you see, for example, that columns have toppled over and they've all toppled in the same direction, that suggests earthquakes. Also, if walls, which were clearly a straight line, have become warped out of position, this indicates earthquakes. And kind of the clincher is if you're finding skeletal bodies that have been crushed by falling stones. Yeah, there is also other answers to that, though. There are, but if you're finding all three of those, then yeah. it's just earthquake. Um, and all of these signs are found throughout the region with uh, in locations we can date to the period. It could be a case, like we were saying earlier on, everything's collapsing and then these are just making it worse, aren't it? Yes. So I think this is coincidence. Yeah. But it surely has not helped. I don't know, because obviously if there's no centralisation to go, yeah, let's go get that stuff fixed. Exactly. So, I mean, like, earthquakes on their own are unlikely to cause complete collapse, but they're not going to help. Uh, in some locations, we can see signs of repair and people moving back in. So we can probably rule out earthquakes as, a, as the thing that completely finishes it off. Yeah. But, again, not helping. Definitely a contribution, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing we have mentioned before, when we talked about the collapse of the Hittites and the the destruction is in the cities in 
uh, within the like the government districts is the idea of internal collapse. So the states collapsing from within, not because of invaders. So I mean, it's worth kind of rem remembering, you know, although the Bronze Age produces incredible monuments and architecture and art and literature, the whole system is built on inequality and exploitation. Like a tiny elite lives on wealth they extract from the poorest people who make up the vast majority. Yeah. That the wealth for the minority elite came from literally just taking the produce off the farmers and the herders. Yeah, like through taxation and that. Yeah. Uh, as we saw, that taxation is brutal. Uh, people would go into debt because of taxes. And basically the only way out of that debt cycle was either you became a slave or you abandoned everything you became a habiru. Uh, a nomadic bandit in the yeah, wilderness. Yeah. So, throughout the period, then, so like the 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 conditions got worse and worse for the poorest. Um, the debt and the slavery following from that got bigger and and worse for people, and more people became nomadic outlaws. Became a serious problem. The labour shortage is described everywhere in the late Bronze Age. Okay. So many people are fleeing, and there's just you know so many elites by this stage. There's not enough workers to support them. They're living such an extravagant lifestyle. There isn't enough tax base to actually pay for it. Yeah, and obviously if all this shit's going on, and then all of a sudden you're not getting your food rations from the government, or the food's yep. not coming in, everyone's already pissed off. The only way these massive cities are enforcing stuff is obviously through military all of a sudden you're not getting your trade of your materials to fund your military so your military is not there people probably smell the blood and go hang on we ain't gotta listen to the city no more yeah so you know the ability of the state to control people is kind of weakening and at the same time you know the state needs to produce that resources to sustain the elite so it's going to be gripping tighter and tighter trying to squeeze more out of them um so you know like these different factors people leaving the breakdown like the top level structure and then the palace is trying to get more and more out of the peasants to try and make up for the shortfall so it might have hit like a critical tipping point at which point the you know the masses of the working people turn on the ruling classes so then you know if the sea people have turned up outside maybe you want to join up with them yeah maybe you see like internal rebellion joining up with invading foreigners and you see the cool jackets and the cool haircuts exactly you want to be like, like those guys yeah yeah um and this would explain like your pizza and your linguine i'm one one in <laughs> cool bikers with pizzas and linguine but also hummus because they're palestinian italians oh yeah also hummus <laughs> i do not hummus and this would explain that targeted destruction we see where only the you know the public buildings in the palace are being destroyed and you know like like you were just saying if the workers decide ultimately like okay this is no longer worth it at all we're not getting any benefit out of this we're just being oppressed and getting nothing let's just pack up and leave and go and live in the desert that's going to cause a death spiral in the city mm -hmm. like if, if the only thing that's left is you know scribes and chariot riders no one wants <laughs> to go and work in the fields so the whole thing's going to collapse and you eventually have to abandon the city. Yeah, man. Another feature of the late Bronze Age is that the you know the social elites become more uh, volatile. There's more unrest among the elites as well. 
Again, it might be that they're sensing the fragility of the situation. And they're probably all clutching for power as well. And there's yes. going to be, obviously, with all this going on, they're going to be doing each other over to try and get the state, keep the status. They're all going to be getting desperate. Exactly. Lot, lots of uh, cloak and dagger. I bet was been going on there. Exactly. There's a lot of that going on between the between the elites. Yeah. So I mean, we've already mentioned like you know the Hittite elites feuding with each other. We've mentioned the instability in Assyria. And it also extends into Egypt. So Ramses the Third, who we've mentioned, are you know Pharaoh who's fighting the Sea People in 1177. He ultimately dies because he has his throat cut by an assassin. Literally, what I just said, isn't it? Quite literally, <laughs> it is, isn't it? Quite literally, what I just said. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we know kind of what happened. So one of the minor queens, one of his secondary wives in his harem was trying to have her son become the heir to the throne. So she kind of cooks up this plot where Ramses III is assassinated. Um, obviously it gets found out, it doesn't work out for her. A body who was found with the mummy of Ramses, and this body, body was not mummified, it was wrapped up in a goat skin. Um, and this one has been identified as the son of Ramses. And we can see from looking at the neck injuries he sustained and the way his face is contorted and twisted that the son of Ramses has been strangled to death. So what, what's the significance of the wrapped up in the goat skin then? Uh, it's like a dishonouring thing. Okay. So we see like, you know, not only the pharaoh is supposed to be like the, you know, the living representation of a god can be assassinated but also the child can be murdered as well to remove the kind of the um the succession was this child is there any link so would this child be her child his third wife is that what we're getting at or was this just this would have been his actual heir and then he was done off as well to change the line of the succession or do we not know uh good question i think it's not entirely clear um, but definitely whoever was wrapping up his son was putting him in the goat skin for the purpose of like ritual uh, defiling of him okay. to make him like impure so there's also evidence that suggests you know, some cities had already been abandoned before they were destroyed and evidence suggests the sea people just moved into cities that had already been abandoned because like the social order had collapsed and they just moved into a city that people had fled from the flip side of this, of course, is that taking away this oppressive structure probably improved the life of the people who made up the vast majority of society. The people at the bottom, without these oppressive structures extracting all the wealth possible from them, their lives probably improved. For the ones that survived. For the ones <laughs> that survived, almost yeah. certainly did, yeah. There's no threat of a debt trap over your head anymore. You can sort of live your life like for yourself rather than to a centralised Exactly. You know, the libertarian dream. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so there's evidence then to believe that the social structure of the cities eroded away. Another possible cause is the changes in the environment. So we already mentioned the Euphrates River changing, and it's possible to see this in the um, context of a bigger scale climate shift. 
all of the written sources that we have throughout the region, there's constantly mentions of food shortages at the end of the Bronze Age. Now, we know that food was always unstable. You know, you have a good harvest and a bad harvest. Yeah. But the references become much more frequent, much more repetitive. So again, it could be the case. We don't have enough workers in the fields. Our soil is becoming exhausted. And now the climate is changing. The growing season isn't as productive. It exacerbates the existing problem. I was going to say, is there is there any evidence that the climate actually changed? I'm sure that's, that can be found out somehow. There's surprisingly good evidence for this. Okay. So, I mean... One thing that you can get the evidence from is people basically digging in the bottoms of lakes and riverbeds. Mm. And you can, from that, you can get uh, deposits of pollen from plants. Okay, yeah, yeah, of course. So it's like kind of trapped and then preserved. So in Syria and in Cyprus, po- uh, pollen that's drawn from the bottom of riverbeds suggests that there is a drier climate in the period 1250 to 850. So right from the start of our collapse in the late bronze age about 12 1250 the climate starts getting drier so this in turn would could cause crop failures from lack of rain that could cause famine and that could drive migration which might encourage you to start fleeing your home get on a boat and start raiding mediterranean cities this could be the driver for the sea peoples i my only issue with that is why would you go from a cooler climate to a hotter climate if the world's getting hotter that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me like if you're living in sicily where it is a lot more temperate than it is in even though it's hot it's a lot more temperate than it is in the middle of the fucking desert in the middle east like why would you go that way if you're not thinking of settling if you're just like you are living in you know being a dirt farmer on the edge of nowhere and you know on the other side of the sea there's this huge glittering civilization with big wealthy cities and all of that go rob and steal yeah. so this is one source of evidence there's more evidence for this as well so um, when people look at you know for example like stalactites in caves you can look at how much oxygen is in the mineral right okay. and this will show you how much rain is falling um we can also look at the makeup of pollen. So we can see that from the evidence there's less rainfall and we can see from pollen pulled out of lakes in Greece that we can see that the plants themselves are adapting to a cl- drier climate. Okay. Sediment cores from the bottom of the Mediterranean show a reduction in surface temperature, which means less rain forming over the Mediterranean. Um, the guy who kind of discovered this around the the Mediterranean climate change, a guy named Brandon Drake, and he dates this to between 1250 and 1197. Again, it's falling in the same range. So we're seeing drier, hotter, less rain. From drilling cores out of the sea floor, so you're literally just drilling out a chunk of seabed, we can see sudden heating with dryness and then cooling coming from it. And just recently, just this year, uh, a new paper came out from a guy named Sturt Manning and some other people. And they were looking at tree ring data from uh, wood that was excavated in Anatolia, so mainland Turkey. And they very specifically identify a drought that lasted between 1198 and 1196. Two years. Two, three years. So, I mean, 
your civilization might be fine for one year drought, one year bad harvest. Three bad harvests on the bounce, it starts looking much harder problem to survive. You know, people talk about like your modern civilization is nine meals away from disaster. We're going through drought at the moment as well. Yep. <laughs> so you know, you imagine a summer it? like this one for three years on the bounce. Yeah. It's going to start seriously affecting the ability to sustain things. And this one we get to the massive, con- mate. This is yeah. that's massive, isn't it? Really. Like, like, you know, I'm just processing it, mate. Please carry on. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm just working it through in my head. Yeah. So there's a lot of data that suggests a climate change of some form happened. Unarguable data that um, there is a massive yep. climate event happening. Yep. Do you not think that may play into the river changing as well? I mean, you said it does happen, but yep, obviously definitely. for such a drastic change, if there's less water in the river as well. Yeah, it might change how we, you know the the, the directions of flow high up in the source, and then it you know changes as it comes yeah. down the down the down the course of the river. Definitely, I think it could be related. Okay. And it's also then the problem of like you know the irrigation. If there's less water in the river, the irrigation ditches don't work. Yeah. And you can see how these things are all flowing into each other. Yeah. And this brings us to a theory called systems collapse. So this is the this is an idea that has a four stage concept. So step one is the collapse of central administration. This is then followed by step two, which is the disappearance of a traditional elite, followed then by the collapse of a centralised economy. Lastly, this is then followed by a settlement shift and population decline. We've already sort of talked about all the evidence of that, haven't we? So that, we've already discussed that basically without it, you know. Yeah, so it fits bang into the theory. And there's kind of, you know, uh, um, an extra to the theory, which is, that later on you have a dark age and there's romantic myths about the earlier period. And again, this is how well described in previous yeah. episodes. Okay. Um, so it's kind of a classic example for the systems collapse uh, uh, model. So what we can say, the system that existed was heavily dependent on the palace, the ability of a central state to organise everything. And if the palace goes, everything goes. Well, that's the that is the system that we've described over eight exactly. episodes, isn't it? That's literally the how the system works and functions. Exactly, and, you know, we talked about how they, you know, they had this complex international economy, and of course, the thing with that is failure in one part of that system is going to cascade into other parts. Mm. They become so dependent that if one of them breaks down, they all break down. So I think that's where we can get to with the Bronze Age, and this is kind of the point that Eric Klein's making in his book is. All of these causes could have happened. None of them, if they happened individually, would cause disaster. But together, they just all feed into each other and make each individual problem worse. And as soon as they get going, they start feeding into each other, and once one civilization has collapsed, it takes the others with it. So what we could see is then we have droughts can cause hunger, hunger can cause people to migrate, the military pressure on the Hittites can take away the trade network. Uh, that we know in earlier times, if there was famine in one place, that the other powers would help. They would send grain ships. Yeah, because we talked about them sending letters to each other, didn't we? Yeah, like, oh, can you, you know, send us this or send us gold or. So I mean, if you've taken away that support network, the ability of the states to back each other up, there's no longer a relief effort that can come. 
uh, any of them that get into trouble are going to stay in trouble and they're going to sink quickly. It's interesting, really, isn't it? How obviously all these people are vying. They are all rivals in the in in the, the you know the broader sense of things, but it's almost like they knew that they are reliant on each other for this system yeah. to work. It's like I think, I think we mentioned earlier, like the people at the top of each of these societies had way more in common with each other than they did with the other people in their own culture. Definitely so, yeah. Um, and as soon as that like mutual support network, the ability of the system to sustain itself falls away, the whole thing comes crashing down. Um, so I think that's our takeaway. Is this is how this is caused? Is probably drought is the factor that kicks this off. And then that starts so many different cascading uh, crises that all come together and just feed off each other and eventually take the whole thing down. Mm. So, to finish up then, let's look at what's the consequence, what happens as a result of the collapse. What we are left with then, as these great empires break apart and disappear, is we're left with smaller uh, states with a simpler social structure, simpler... um, material culture they're not reliant on these massive international trade networks we're left with a period of political instability where the states that emerge and those that survive are politically unstable Um, there's a lot of internal conflict and the other big thing that comes in is the loss of a literate culture which i think is one of the defining features of the late bronze age is an international elite that all speak the Akkadian language this is gone but that's not the whole story. In places where the you know the palace organisation has collapsed, the international trade network has collapsed, there is a need for technological innovation and improvement. If you have just lost all of your access to the international copper and tin markets for making bronze, you have to substitute it with something, and the answer is going to be iron. Mm, okay. Now, raw iron worked iron is inferior to bronze as a metal it's not strong it's not able to hold the same edge but around the year 1100 the technique of alloying with charcoal is developed which gives you steel rather than Mm. iron and this gives you a material that's much easier to produce iron is common copper is exceedingly rare Everyone has iron available, you can alloy with steel, you get something that's basically as good, maybe, as bronze. Um, the surviving palace cultures cultures uh, in Egypt and in Assyria are slow to adopt iron and steel, and they only adopt it in the 9th century BC. But other areas like Greece, they have to adopt it very quickly, and their steel technology becomes, um, you know, it has to fill the same place that bronze did. And it does so something that's much cheaper, much more readily available. Well, steel's the primary resource of what we use for most things today. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? How through a, it's almost like through by accident they've found out that iron is actually, when you turn it into an alloy to make steel, it is superior. Obviously, the, obviously, steel technology today, you can make stuff out of steel that just wouldn't be viable to make out of bronze. But yeah. I mean, for steel to become viable, it required people developing like you know the right sort of kilns that would produce a consistent temperature and consistent. You have to get it hot level. as fuck, yeah, because we talked about this, didn't we? Because on um, one of the very early episodes we did about yeah. how, like, like you said, raw iron 
so like the early technique for making like iron implements it's shit like because they yeah. couldn't get you have to get it super super fucking hot and they didn't have the furnace technology yeah you know to obviously it weren't it, it is a furnace in it in it's in, it, in it's like basic but the technology to get it hot enough wasn't there but over time it's mad how this collapse very very obviously has had an effect on why iron starts getting used and yet we still use iron today as a yeah. super common material for structures of cars and obviously we use aluminium as well but yeah, I mean, I think, like, the key thing is being able to regulate how much carbon goes into it. Yeah. I think that was the key technology, and I think this comes out of India, like, the perfection of this. Um, and, yeah, so for the cultures that kind of weren't flattened by the collapse, they're sort of left in a little bit of, like, a, a technical hiatus. They don't develop this, because they have no need to. They have bronze readily available. Um also we see new people migrating into the region because of the loss of the ability of the states to control their borders so we have new peoples moving in there's Phrygians who move into Anatolia probably coming from the Balkans sounds like is... they come from the fridge um, they <laughs> invent a particular type of hat which is like a a symbol of like revolution lib- liberalism you know like um, when you see like French revolutionaries they have these floppy red hats uh, you ever no. seen like, like or depiction of like a uh, the French Republic? They have this like floppy red hat. It's okay. It's called a Phrygian cap. Okay. And it, it was a symbol of like revolution in the nineteenth century. Oh, okay. And it comes all the way from. back from yeah, yeah. Oh shit. Okay. Nice. Um, the Israelites and the Philistines move into Canaan, um, which obviously is like the development then of like Israelite culture and Judaism as we understand it. And the Aramean people spread out across northern Syria, sharing their language across initially Syrian Babylon, eventually across all of the Middle East. The Aramaic language was probably the language that was spoken by Jesus and the disciples. Okay. And it's the language that parts of the Hebrew Bible. Really this is mentioned. where I've probably heard Aramaic yep. definitely before, obviously, because I've got quite an interest in like biblical studies, I guess you'd call it. Mm. Um, so I've almost certainly that's where I've heard it before yeah so I mean obviously like you know the spread of Judaism or the development of Judaism and like the language goes with it huge impact on history Mm. Um, the other kind of major development that we still live with today from this is we've already mentioned so the bureaucracies, bureaucracies disappear and that elite class that can write in Akkadian also goes away because they're no longer being sustained Without that international system, you don't no, you no longer need a language that you all understand. You don't need Akkadian anymore. So in places where writing survived, writing switches to be in the local language rather than Akkadian. And as the local languages come to dominate literate culture, there's a switch to linear alphabets. So we mentioned before cuneiforms. Cuneiform is written by pressing your uh, tool into a piece of clay to make shapes linear alphabets are more like alphabets that we have today um, they are simpler to write you no longer need a specialised scribe who can write them the big one that comes along is the Phoenician alphabets the Phoenicians are a people in modern Lebanon um, sounds very like, much like Venetian. I was thinking then, like, yeah, Phoenician. No, Have I heard Venetian. that? I was like, no, it just sounds like Venetian, I think. <laughs> so Phoenicians were a seafaring people in modern Lebanon, 
and they developed a written alphabet which they transmitted to Greece. The Phoenicians spoke a Semitic language, so related to Hebrew and Arabic. Okay. They passed their alphabet al- along to the Greeks. The Greeks made changes to it. They added extra letters to indicate vowel sounds, making it more useful for non-Semitic like European languages. And that alphabet would give us the modern Latin alphabet, which is what me and you are writing in today. Yeah. And this comes as a direct consequence of the Bronze Age collapse. Do you not think that's interesting as well, how directly after this collapse all them Abrahamic religions sort of start popping up. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. That's all directly after... Well, in the grand scheme of things, that almost seems directly after this. Yeah, I mean, like, the the Israelites as a thing, they emerge within the centuries following this. And definitely that couldn't have happened if the Egyptians and the Hittites were still running the show. So the emergence of, like... Uh, biblical Israel and Judaism in the form that we, we recognise it as directly a consequence of the changes yeah. of the late Bronze Age and obviously without that no Christianity, without that no Islam so I mean the cultural impact coming from the collapse of the late Bronze Age it's enormous mm. yeah nobody knows about it really in the grand scheme of things fucking nobody knows about this do they <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit obscure. It's, you know, it's a bit difficult to keep up because you've got to keep track of lots of different peoples that don't don't exist anymore, languages that don't exist. It's a little bit hard to follow in times. You know, the evidence is sometimes very technical and difficult to keep up on. Um, so I think it's a little bit difficult to get into. And it's, you know, no one today is claiming to be, like, you know, the state descended from the Hittite Empire. Yes, there's no, like, modern relevance to there's, it, I suppose. Exactly. There's no continuity um, so it makes it a little bit like of an obscure topic, but I think it is a super interesting thing. And I like as we said way back at the start of the series, I think there's a lot of parallel between their world and our world. Definitely, yeah. And especially when you look at how this ended and like how things are going today with the climate, it's a little bit. Scary. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's mad that we've chose such a hard topic for the first one. Obviously, to you and me, this is super <laughs> interesting, but like this is. This is probably one of the hardest topics we could have chose for our first attempt at a podcast, to be honest, isn't it? Like, obviously, we didn't think, because obviously neither of us have ever done a podcast before. And we'd we'd sort of chose it because we thought, oh, this will be well interesting. But I think we made life a lot more difficult, because obviously we were talking about Nazi Germany, we'd both be smashing that, because we both know a lot about it, but... Yeah, to be fair, like, when I wrote this, I thought it was going to be a three-episode series. Yeah, I remember you saying that at the time, yeah, I remember (laughs) you telling me that. But equally, you've you've shown your worth as a researcher, Ross. That fucking degree much. in masters is coming in handy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very nice. So yeah, I think that is the place where we leave the late Bronze Age. What is that? It. That's it. So there's no more like poles of magic evidence that you're going to pull out. Like, I ain't be funny. Like, obviously, there's what we've talked about. It all makes perfect sense, but I wouldn't say that's enough evidence as a whole to concretely say this is how it's ended. Like it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the ecological, uh, the the economical effects of the down spiral of trade, the 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 change in the the weather basically, 
for you know easier terms like the weather like massively heating up and the drought makes perfect sense the earthquakes makes perfect sense but it's just a shame i don't think it'll ever get to a stage where we'll be able to yeah. go this is why it's ended honestly i think this is like this is a good point you're making because this is what history is like as a discipline history is never going to give you like a hard science this is it answer it's not the nature of the discipline history is a probabilities game so all you can do is stack the evidence and say this suggests this and we have more and more but you're only looking at probability um and i think this is a thing that's difficult for people that haven't studied history to um be aware of because obviously like you know maths and science it's very definitive x plus y equals z and well that's how that's my happen. life as an engineer obviously everything i do there is an answer to everything yeah and it can be quantified and calculated like okay this is specifically what i do for a living this machine should produce this it's not figure out why then and then i can figure out this is the answer because i can change this i can make this happen and then eventually this will work so there's a firm answer yes that's the answer to the to the problem exactly. where you can't History do that can does, you yeah. it's just it not a thing like that it's always a probabilities game um and i think this is like you know we've talked a bit about conspiracy theory in this series have um, we <laughs> Loads, yes. <laughs> you had me then. <laughs> Fucking Captain Space lasers. Why am I even? Laser guided lasers. It's a laser guided laser, sorry. But I think that's the reason why people are like you know a bit susceptible to conspiracy theories around history generally, especially unfamiliar history like this. Mm. Is people want to hear just a definitive answer like this? This is why this is this. And history as a discipline is like, well, we, what we're actually doing is we're digging around in the desert, we're digging out pollen samples, and we say, the evidence suggests the probability is this. And then, you know, people will come along and be like, oh, well, it's obviously Atlantis space aliens. <laughs> and they're kind of exploiting how history works. Which is like, oh, it's a probabilities game. And you're like, yeah, so it's equally as probable that Atlantis space aliens versus hugely complex argument around pollen samples. And it's like, yeah, the probabilities, but one is a no point no 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 one percent chance, and one is a pretty viable a forty percent chance. Yeah, it's well. history is a lot like um law, you know, like when you go into a jury court, you generally speaking, you're not you you can have the best evidence in the world to the jury, but ultimately it's how well you can convince them. Yeah, about what you're talking about. And I think history is a lot like that. And I do think there's definitely it. scope here, though. Obviously. There could be one little thing that gets discovered that could drastically change our understanding of things, I feel. Obviously, there's a lot... Like, for me, the the, the weather changing, the earthquakes, the Tigris um, changing, like, flows. Like there, I think there is scope there for some sort of more cataclysmic ecological event that probably could have made this happen this is obviously me just spitballing it obviously there's no i haven't got any evidence to back this up but there is what i'm saying is there is scope there for something like that to happen there could have been a cataclysmic event that caused these things to happen um do you not if think I'm going with, if we're going with like spitballing my gut feeling i suspect that the evidence in the next years and decades is going to get stronger and stronger oh yes yes yeah, i think 
I think yeah, people are very cautious when they make an argument, but I think drought as a catastrophic event, I think a lot of things are pointing in that direction. That's what and I'm e- thinking. Even I... this year, more uh, sources coming out, more like you know arguments around uh, the the tree rings we mentioned. There's a lot of signs indicating a catastrophic drought in a specific number of years. Yeah, and that. Mm, but again, it's a very complex system, and like one specific single disaster can be responded to. A systematic failure. Certainly, yeah. I'm not saying that what one, one event's going to have caused all this, but I'm just thinking in my head. This is something we'd never, we, we will almost certainly probably never know this, but there could have been like a massive solar flare that happens, and it's yeah, completely I mean... changed, and then the people in. It, the Italian Palestinians with the hummus and the bike jackets <laughs> they've been affected by it so they've moved these people have been affected by it because of the floods the earth you know what I mean like it's interesting yeah, yeah. Like, obviously we'd never um, know we'll, I don't think we'd ever know that because there's no I don't think well maybe there is but there's no historical record for like solar flares and or things like that yeah and, I mean solar flares you can track but only if people are recording it exactly yeah um and these people assume... have no telescopes, mate. There was no telescopes. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> well, at some point we're going to talk about 17th century, and like, there's an amazing theory that the 17th century crisis is caused by solar flares. Um, for the late Bronze Age, some people have theorised around volcanic eruptions in Iceland as a possible trigger. Well, we had that thing happen in within our lifetime, didn't yeah. we? Where no. um, something happened in Iceland, then it fucking fucked us all yeah, up. I can't remember exactly what stuff. happened. Yeah, but... yeah, the volcano exploded and you couldn't fly. Yeah. Lots of stuff. So, I mean, I haven't looked into this well enough to give a solid answer, but I know that the idea of volcanoes in Iceland having an impact is out there. Definitely in the early 19th century, volcanoes erupting in Indonesia caused the year without summer in Europe. So it's entirely possible volcanic activity, for example, could have been yeah. a trigger. Could have been solar flares, could have been any number of things as to why that climate change happened in those years. It would take um, a real, I think, uh, like a real lucky chance to stumble upon that. I don't think we yeah. would ever find that out. That's something that probably would be lost forever, I've, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think when we're going so far back, when the written record becomes so limited, um, it becomes difficult. Because, I mean, like, in more recent times, you can compare records from China against records in Europe, yeah. against records in colonial Americas, and you can see if they're reporting the same phenomenon. Where this is so far back, so like for our collapse, we're relying ninety percent Egyptian, ten percent like Hittite or Babylonian yeah. records. I'm not ruling out aliens. Like it's it's, it's probably a not point not 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 one percent chance, but I'm not ruling it out because throw this... they could have done it, but they probably didn't. I'm going to throw this out here to you as our number one, you know, alternative expert. Who would want to fight aliens or Atlantis? I'm thinking. I'm not just thinking. Quiet. I'm thinking. Hang on. Who would win? Islands versus Atlantis. Atlantis, I think. Ooh. So I can breathe underwater. <laughs> it, you know what I mean? Like I've been to the Air Three Thousand. Not much has changed. But they live underwater. But they live underwater. <laughs> Man, 
I think that's the perfect note to leave the late Bronze Age on. Yeah, I feel like it is, mate. I feel like this has been a great success. <laughs> this is the end of the series. I feel like you can see, obviously, this is your memory. We've been talking about this for years, about doing like a pod- history podcast together. It's been on the cards for years. And this is the end of our first season. And I feel like if you go back and listen to episode one to now, it's very changed. Like, yeah, I, I feel like we've got it in a groove. Like, we're sort of talking now, like, how are you and me just talk? Rather than it being, like, this scripted event that we're <laughs> recording. Like, this is very much... Obviously, people listening, you don't know me and Ross on a personal level, but this is basically how our conversations work. If we talk every day, <laughs> considering I live in England, bear in mind, me and Ross have known each other for how long? Since we were, like, six years old? Yeah, like that. so like So, I'm 33 now. Ross is 32. In fact, it's your birthday fucking next month, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, two weeks. Two weeks. Fucking hell, that's come round quick. Yeah, yeah, it's a night, isn't it, today? Um, obviously, we've we've been talking about this for ages, but I feel like the next it's just going to get better. We've already decided yeah. the next uh, the next thing we're going to do is the Nazi war economy, and specifically the Nazi during World War, obviously post World War One towards and the finish of World War Two to their demise and yeah. this is obviously a more popular topic it's something we're both a lot more well versed on um, and I feel like yeah this is a good one to start with I feel like we've done it justice and honestly you've put in so much fucking effort mate to this like <laughs> you're we've got like a shared document where Ross has done all his research and you've done such a good job mate honestly like it blew me, when we talked obviously we talked about it he's like yeah, yeah i'll do the research and i was like yeah sound and then you blew me away mate you've done you've put such an effort into this like little round of applause to to you that's not Thank me ball slapping off anything that's just me clapping <laughs> that is yeah. how we applaud though yeah yeah it's flapping our quellackers about no, uh, I think but, definitely, like, uh, there's been a learning curve. I think, like, when you were about to listen to the first episode, it's like, whoa. Yeah. questionable it, quality. Yeah, and <laughs> we are going to both invest in better microphones as well. That's what yep. we've talked about. We've had a few issues with the recording. Obviously, bear in mind, Ross lives in the Czech Republic. I live in fucking Birmingham. So we this is all recorded over the internet. We use something called Soundtrap uh, for the obviously the recording we've had a few issues with it we're getting through them i think once we've changed the input source we can both get better like microphones mm. it's gonna sound better um but no nah, i'm really happy i'm happy like, i feel like we're at the end don't we we're finished yep. and yeah no we'll, we'll be back in two weeks with a new topic we're gonna move on to the the nazis and all the all the wonderful things they did for us all <laughs> <laughs> I like that we go for the most cheerful stuff we can find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. To be fair, history's full of nothing but like disappointment <laughs> and sorrow, isn't it? Pretty so. much. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. It's really is like absolutely made up. So many of you have listened in, uh, especially like people that are just dropping in week after week. Um, it's been amazing. Um, so really glad to have you along for the ride. Hope you enjoy the next topic and as always if you have any ideas or suggestions for future series or any questions you would like us to talk about on the show um, you can drop them to us in our email at history at gmail.com yeah or... I noticed that one made a big thing last time I was like oh, I'd love it if someone emailed us and no one fucking did I'm just saying <laughs> like, you know no one did no one emailed me so 
So if you don't want to disappoint Files and hurt his feelings, then please <laughs> drop us a question. <laughs> or on the Twitter at Make Us a History. Um, I will share some of the uh, documents I relied on for this episode, especially when we talked about the drought and the new evidence around that. Um, so that'll be available on the. Oh Twitter. yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, you have to be a much cleverer person than I am to understand it fully, but it is all there. They have <laughs> graphs and everything, so it's very serious. Oh, graphs and everything must be yeah, serious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you always for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Mm. Sam, I'll swig in my Guinness then. Sam, alright. That's it. Love you and leave yous. See you next time. Bye bye!